0: Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of historical events that I will discuss I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. The purpose of the podcast in general are to discuss history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the world around you, but in a way that is understandable and interesting. In this podcast, we are going to discuss the rise of the three great philosophers extremely briefly, not even doing any amount of justice to the contribution and impact that these men had on Western thinking. Please remember, too, that these philosophers did not always agree with one another in their teachings, nor were they accepted necessarily by all segments of society. The first of the philosophers, of course, is Socrates. Socrates. Oftentimes, people get confused as to which of the three great philosophers came first, Aristotle, Socrates, or Plato. Well, an interesting way to remember it is when you think of the three great philosophers, just picture yourself going to the spa, and you'll always have the chronology down. Spa, S. Socrates, P. for Plato, and A. for Aristotle. For Socrates, he believed that everything was relative. Nothing is absolute. The world and our minds is in a constant change of, uh, state of change. When somebody says that that individual is Socratic in their thinking, or that so-and-so teaches using the Socratic method, it would be a series of questions and answers to stimulate critical thinking, to draw out the essential facts from one's own argument, but also to recognize that maybe some of the points in the argument are not as strong as others. One of his students of notoriety, of course, was Plato. Plato. Plato, in his impact or his contribution, thought that reality exists only in the mind, that nothing is perfect. That was driven home to me by my second child when he wasn't much older than four or five years old, when he could hear him fussing in his bedroom and went and asked Chris what's wrong, and he indicated that he was trying to draw a bee like a honeybee or a a wasp. He wanted to draw a bee, and he was so frustrated that he couldn't do it. So he asked his mother to do it. She drew a great one. But of course, he ended up crying because that's not a bee. I attempted to take over. Why would I bother you ask? Yeah, I know. I should have thought of that then. But I attempted to draw the bee using a variety of colors. And once again, it wasn't happy for him either, because in his mind, that wasn't a bee. So oftentimes a child is the one that actually reflects as one of many contributions that Plato exists, gives to the world is that reality does only exist in the mind. To a certain extent, it's wonderful to think, okay, nothing is perfect. He kind of, Plato can kind of give the human race a break that to achieve perfection is not necessarily attainable but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try for it. He would open up a school to demonstrate his teachings and thinking, what became called the Academy. His prized student, that being Aristotle, in his contribution that nature of objects separates them from other objects. Aristotle wanted to be far more practical in his thinking as he would teach his students in the Lyceum. The Lyceum, however, is where Aristotle came across arguably one of the most his most popular students in the world and for all of time at least through to 2020. But it wouldn't be a student that would carry on his philosophy or that of his predecessors, Plato or Socrates before him. No, he would his, his contribution to the world would be have far, far greater ranging of impact that we'll talk about in just a moment. The final years of the classical period of ancient or Hellenic Greece saw Greece in a constant state of warfare, exhausting and bankrupting many of the city-states in southern Greece. An individual that sought to stop all of that infighting and turn Greece's attention to the greater threat, that to the east, Persia, who had attempted to attack Greece twice before, as we talked about in the last podcast in 480 and 490 BC, that he wanted Greece to concentrate its efforts in order to enact revenge against Persia. That's what brings us in to what we call Hellenistic Greece. So Hellenic Greek history is one studies Greece, and largely what you study is internal, almost like all domestic policy, domestic affairs. Hellenistic is Greek-like. And the reason for that fine difference there is because in this particular part of Greek history, this is where Greece expands its borders substantially, not only to teach other areas of the world how it does things, but just as important to learn from other areas of the world things that they could teach the ancient Greeks. Philip of Macedon was the one that was hoping to carry on this idea. Again, Macedon or Macedonia, is another city-state, just like Thebes or Corinth or Athens or Sparta. Macedon was in the northwestern part of the Greek peninsula, and today is the same footprint as we have in the what country that's independently called Macedonia today. However, Philip never got the opportunity to see his dream come true. He had the respect of his soldiers because of his age and his demonstrations on the battlefield, but he also had the respect of the Greek city-states who feared the Macedonian army. So when Philip essentially said, we need to buckle down everybody and focus our attention on who the real enemy was and will be again, people by and large followed Philip's lead. The problem was, again, that Philip wouldn't have the opportunity to carry this out. At a time when it was supposed to be a joyous occasion for Philip, his wife Olympia, and their family, it turned out to be a disaster, a tragedy. Because as Philip was walking into the ceremonial tent to watch the marriage of his daughter, as he was approaching the tent, a servant ahead of should have been ahead of Philip to open up the flap of the tent so that Philip could walk in without happening to op- without having to open the tent himself. In other words, like getting the door for him. But the problem was, is that there wasn't a servant in front of Philip when he was approaching the tent. Out of respect for his father, Alexander, Alexander II of Macedon, was standing right behind Philip and walking behind him, saw that Philip was going to have to move the flap himself and stepped out from behind his father, raced ahead of him to get the flap to open it for his father. However, the moment that Alexander stepped away from behind Philip, a spear came from seemingly nowhere and blasted Philip right in the lower back, dropping him onto the earth, dying shortly thereafter who killed philip of macedon we don't know however some speculation was that the spear was meant for alexander that alexander knew it so he stepped aside but no evidence ever seemed to support that what's more is that the investigation would never point towards alexander any more than initial in spe- initial investi- initial speculation excuse me because his mother olympia again, who had looked at Alexander as her prized child, would simply thwart any further question that he could have been susceptible or capable of doing this. However, what people often did wonder is, did the mother, Philip's wife, have anything to do with it? As That was not necessarily a marriage made in heaven, and Philip was known to have his affairs with other people throughout the city-state. However, the fact of the matter was that Philip was gone, And the plans for attacking Persia in revenge for attacking Greece twice seemed to disappear to everybody except to Alexander. Alexander of Macedon, we believe, was roughly 20 years old when his father died. Alexander was born in 356 BC. He was a young ruler having the keys to the kingdom at 20 years old. But please, in this case, don't equate age with wisdom. Not only was Alexander extremely educated, you'd never guess who his, literally his primary teacher was, none other than Aristotle. And Aristotle taught Alexander about the ways of thinking, the beauties of the world that, that Aristotle would describe, and Alexander was a fantastic student. But often again, just because one is educated doesn't necessarily mean they have common sense or even wise in the in the common sense way that said this was demonstrated that alexander clearly had this when when alexander witnessed some time before philip's death that philip had several debts that were due to him at a certain point a date that these debts became due and people were coming up to Philip in order to pay their debts. And one man in particular came up to Philip, but apologized that he didn't have any money. He didn't have the money to pay the debt. And Philip was about to put him in jail until his wife and children could pay the debt off. But the man protested and pleaded with Philip to ask him to take a beautiful black horse with a white star on its chest. Would Philip take this beautiful young black horse as a payment for the debt that was owed to him? Philip was impressed by the size of the horse, its apparent excellent health. And Philip wanted to take the horse, but Philip couldn't get the horse to calm down. It was bucking, throwing its back legs and its front legs in the air. And with that, Philip had his prize horseman. the equivalent of today's idea of a veterinarian trying to calm the horse down but nobody was successful and the man clearly saw that the horse was going to be done away with and that he would have to go to jail with that philip ordered exactly what the man had feared the horse was to be killed and the man thrown in jail however alexander upon witnessing this whole exchange ran out from the bushes outside the courtyard and yelled, Father, Father, please don't. Don't kill that horse. The horse is a beautiful horse, and I can control it, Father. The fact that Philip was being challenged, his final decision challenged by anybody, much less his son, made everybody stop in a death-like stillness to watch what might happen next. Philip, the fact that he was challenged publicly by Alexander, wanted to look like at least the open-minded father, by more or less stepping back to see what Alexander has in mind. However, Philip's ego got the best of him. And before Alexander could approach the horse, Philip reached down and grabbed with his massive meat hook of a hand, grabbed Alexander by the shoulder and said, What will you give me if you cannot tame the horse the way that you claim you can? Alexander turned and looked right at his father and said, Father, I will give you twice the value of the horse. With that, there was a few sighs and woos from people standing around the courtyard. Philip looked like he was being shown up, but he stepped back nonetheless. And Alexander grabbed the rope around the horse's rein and pulled the horse around and moved it in a series of positions. And suddenly, the horse stopped bucking. It eventually began to stand perfectly still. Its breathing finally steadied. Alexander jumped on the back of the horse and rode it around the courtyard and back up to where all of the men and his father was standing. People were beyond amazed that Alexander was able to calm this horse down. He got off of the horse. And folks, please believe me when I say that this was not a moment when Alexander was pounding his chest, putting thumb on himself to show everybody, huh? See, look at this. Take a look at this guy. Look at what I can do. Not at all. He walked away in perfect subservience to his father. He had simply demonstrated that the horse was salvageable. However, Philip's ego again got the best of him. And that's when he turned around and grabbed Alexander once again by the shoulder, wheeled him around and said, Admittedly, son, you have saved the horse and you saved this man by paying off his debt. And with that, the man took off. (laughs) However, as Philip said, You said that you would pay me twice the value of the horse. You don't have any money. You could not have paid that debt. So you made a debt that you couldn't pay. And Alexander looked at his father square in the eye and said, No, father, not at all. You were going to shoot, or basically kill the horse, because the horse was worth nothing. Zero. Father, two times zero is zero. Philip stepped back, looked at his son, pounded his foot into the dirt, and bellowed out that, My son, there is no room for the two of us in this kingdom. Folks, the fact that Alexander was able to do this is one thing as a 20-year-old. But Alexander wasn't 20 years old when this happened. We believe that Alexander was somewhere between the ages of 7 and 9 years old. What Alexander had proven is that a young horse taken out of the stable for the first time can be afraid of its own shadow. By the simple demonstration of the power of simple silence and observation, Alexander noticed that every time the horse looked down, it saw its own shadow, larger than itself, and immediately reared in order to defend itself to get away. Again, not bad from somewhere between an 8- and a 10-year-old kid. But this is what I'm talking about when I say that Alexander has this power of simple silence and observation. Something that I can only imagine how, how proud Aristotle would have been in this demonstration. However, as the story clearly got around the Kingdom of Macedonia and all the other city-states, that was one thing to have had taken place roughly 10 years ago. But the fact of the matter is Alexander is now 20 years old. He may have common sense. He may have a heck of an education, world-class, we might call it today. But does that mean that he can actually lead an entire army of fifty to 60,000 men or more? He had never really demonstrated himself in the battlefield when the chips were down. Oh, sure, he demonstrated the way he could actively ride a horse, to be able to hold a shield, to be able to hold a sword. But those were all exercises. He had never actually been in real battle. Alexander was smart enough to know that this is what all of Philip's men were thinking. And he had to demonstrate to them that they were more important than even he himself was to himself. In the way that was done is Alexander ordered a a series of exercises to be taken place in the Northern part of Macedonia. And it was there that the weather turned very, very hot and dry, and the men were clearly becoming dehydrated. So Alexander ordered all of the men to sit and rest, and several scouts to go find a source of water so that all of them could go to. A few hours later, the scouts came back with every one of their helmets full of water to demonstrate that the water was there, it was pure and clean, and it would not be that far a walk in order to be able to get there. Obviously, those helmets full of water, the way it would have been done before is Alexander would drink first and then pass all the water available down to the highest ranking men, to the lowest ranking men. However, Alexander took one of both of those helmets full of water, one in each hand, walked all the way down to the, line, to the lines in rank, to the lowest ranking officer, and gave it to him. And as the officer drank, Alexander jumped on to a a tree stump, as Alexander would have to do on many occasions, as he was no more than five feet, two inches tall. He was not a a tall man. He did not have a commanding presence. It's part of the reason why, to this day, to our knowledge, there is no full sculpture of Alexander the Great. He never allowed himself to be uh, emulated in any form of art except for the chest up or of just the head. The one full size figure we have of Alexander, one of them was on my uh, is in my office. The only reason that Alexander allowed him to be recreated, from head to toe, is because he was on the horse on the back of the horse that he had won from his father, a horse that he had named Bucephalus. That horse would be with him for the remainder of his days in battle. So, as the young officer drank his water. Alexander jumped up onto a, to a tree stump and yelled out that all of his men will drink before Alexander drinks, will eat before Alexander eats, and will sleep before Alexander goes to sleep. That simple action, not words, but action preceding those words, is what drew the men around. Alexander now had the force of the army. The loyalty and the devotion that Philip once had of the army, Alexander now had as well. So now he began to draw up his plans to adapt the initial plans to attack Persia. However, as he was getting his plans together, word was coming up through the ranks that the city-states down in the southern part of the Aegean Peninsula, down near Athens and Sparta and Corinth and Thebes, were actually beginning to start to rebel Against Alexander's authority, and were calling their soldiers home, they did not want to partake in the military campaign to attack Persia any longer. That's when Alexander realized that he had to whip those city states into shape, to get him to show the to get them to show him the allegiance that they once showed his father. As Alexander's right-hand man, who was Philip's right-hand man, Parmenio, said, Sir, there's a lot of city-states rebelling. There's no way we can actually get a hold of them all. Alexander said, You don't have to. You just have to do it once and do it right, and you'll never have to repeat it and do it again. Parmenio didn't know what Alexander meant. Alexander drew up the plans, and he labeled the destination Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S, that's the city-state that would feel Alexander's wrath. When Parmenio looked over the plans, he questioned Alexander, do you mean every word of this? Alexander looked right at him and said, absolutely. Parmenio said very well. Several days later, Parmenio and the entourage of soldiers that he took down to Thebes had returned. Mission Accomplished. Every other city-state now was perfectly in line with Alexander's plans, whatever they may be. Thebes, on the other hand, did not recall its army, because it couldn't. The city-state of Thebes was essentially wiped off the map. Other than one sole structure, every physical building and structure was razed and burned. Every woman and child brought out of there and sold into slavery. Every man killed. Only one structure not only remained intact, but not one Macedonian soldier even dared to step on the property of this house. And that was the house of the great Greek poet Pindar, somebody that Alexander had not only studied, but had great respect for when he was a student under Aristotle. Do you see this theme of education again coming back into Alexander's plans? So Alexander now has the army. He has the city states completely behind him now. With that, it would be on to the conquest of his father. Do you notice at this point that I keep saying his father, his father, it's not Alexander's goals. It's as though his life essentially is his father's, even though his father is no longer here. He feels as though that he has to carry on his father's wishes. The first time we're seeing this in Western history, but not the last time. So from here, he will then go and again enact revenge against the Persian Empire for trying to attack Greece twice. Alexander did not exactly march into Persia quietly. King Darius of Persia clearly knew that Alexander was coming. So Darius, being the good strategist himself, obviously knew where he was going to stop the Macedonian army, right in its tracks. And that was going to be at the Granicus River on the far western side of Persia, not far from the Aegean Sea. Why stop an invading army at the river? Because again, as we talked about in a prior podcast, Rivers are scary natural elements. We need them for the water. We need them for the transportation and other things. But to actually access them for military purposes or to cross them to get to the other side can be daunting. Darius knew this. He was playing good common sense. Secondly, Darius already outnumbered Alexander two to one. So Alexander, by heading across the Granicus River, is going to have to go down to the low ground. Cross that river, exhaust his men, and then come up on the other side. Again, outnumbered two to one. Great thinking on Darius's part. And the king of Persia, Darius, he got his soldiers down there in the traditional, as had been done now for well over a century and a half, the traditional block formation a series of blocks of soldiers. Ready to engage, and the moment that the enemy calls makes the cry for battle, they would pour in through the center, just the way again military strategy had been written up. Alexander, on the other side, on the other hand, he would not have the luxury of setting up blocks of troops because he simply didn't have enough. Alexander looked at the Persian forces on the other side of the river, sized them up. Parmenio, his right-hand man, clearly could see that Alexander was quite nervous. However, Alexander, Parmenio would later learn, wasn't nervous at all. His fidgeting was nothing more than you might call in a modern-day application or diagnosis was more or less an ADD, an attention deficit disorder type reaction. He was simply fidgeting with his hands. Alexander was quite confident. So he drew up his plans on parchment and then gave them to Parmenio, where they would begin the battle the next day. Parmenio looked over looked over the plans and then gently prodded Alexander saying, sir, this is not the way military campaigns have ever been fought. And Alexander looked right back at Parmenio and said, exactly, the battle would begin the next day in May of 334 BC. Once Alexander made the cry for battle, Alexander's soldiers appeared to start the attack from the center. Of course, that's what Darius was anticipating and began to move his forces in from the center. However, as the forces of Darius came closer and closer to the river, Alexander's center force backed up. Parmenio, who was on the far left, came forward as though he were going to attack from the left, forcing Darius' soldiers over to the right. In this disarray, Alexander then came in from the right and split Darius's forces in half. Today, any military commander worth their salt knows exactly the maneuver that Alexander had taken. It was called the right-hook strategy. Right hook or left hook, the idea of a hook attack had never been done before in a way that Alexander could have studied. But it was a way that allowed Alexander to equalize the significant numerical advantage that Darius had. Because of that, once the battle began, please remember, you are hearing this through your computer or phone And via a podcast from one voice, mine, what I cannot simulate for you is the amount of cacophony, the noise, the screaming of soldiers out of fear, the screaming of soldiers to intimidate, the screaming of soldiers that were intimidated, the screaming of soldiers that were hurt, dying. The sounds of the horses, the thrashing of the feet and the hooves on the grass, and then in the dirt, and then into the mud, and then into the water. All of that noise is going on at once. Once Darius realized what Alexander was doing, he cannot throw up his hands and say, Okay, hold on here, everybody. Time out. Hold on, everybody. Shh, back up. We're going to try this over again. No, there's no do-overs here, folks. There's no pauses. Once the battles begin, and at that point, It's up to the mind of the great best strategist. Please know that up until this time, by and large, with very few exceptions, the side that won generally had the highest number of men. The larger the head head count, the better your chances of winning. Alexander completely took that law and threw it on its head. Numerical advantage does not guarantee victory any longer. Do you notice, too, when I said that Alexander wanted Parmenio to move left to appear to attack, the center to move forward to appear to attack, the right where Alexander was, where the attack would come from, appeared to stay still. When Parmenio asked him, where did you get that idea? Alexander looked at Parmenio over a dinner that they were having. And said, listen and listen carefully. All warfare is based on deception. When near, make it appear as though you're far away. When you're far away, you make it appear as though you're near. When you're actively using your forces, you make it look as though you're inactive. When you're inactive, you make it look as though you are active. You feign disorder within the enemy camp. And you crush them." Sun Tzu. The Art of War. 500 BC. China. That manuscript was 170 years old when Alexander got a hold of it for the first time. And Alexander memorized it. And as we can see here, not only put it into action, but made it literally as though that was the future of warfare. And in many cases, it was. So what does Alexander do now? There was 4,000 Persian casualties, 2,000 prisoners of war only to three to 400 casualties and deaths on Alexander's side. So where does he go now? See you at the next podcast to figure out what Alexander does next. Thanks for listening.